the system is better off with a neutral asset that can price everything because without a neutral asset, you have no pricing of anything. Money must be neutral. And there is no neutral money outside of Bitcoin at the moment. Hello there. How are you all doing? Are you having a good week? Got my boy Danny here over in the UK. He's flown over. We're getting ready for a crazy couple of weeks here in Bedford. We're recording 18 shows in my hometown. And then we're finishing off with a WBD live event. I cannot wait. Cannot wait to see some of you. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got a banger of a show to you. I've got Isabella Kaminsky on the show. Okay. So Danny has been nagging me for a while to get Isabella on the show. And I've known Isabella for a while. We met, we hung out in Amsterdam at the Bitcoin conference. And when she was in London, we finally made it happen. Sadly, Danny couldn't be here for it, so we're going to have to do it again sometime. Now, this was originally meant to be a show discussing media, but we ended up discussing much broader things. We got into the role of democracy and why democracy and media are both seemingly failing right now. Now, I really enjoyed this. Could have done with another hour, maybe another couple of hours. So I'm sure Isabella will be back on the show, and I'm sure I can have Danny there as well. Now, if you've got any feedback on this or anything else, please hit me up. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to come to our live event, WBD Live, on April the 15th with Jeff Booth, James Lavish, Loris Lepard, and Ben Ark, head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WBD Live. And if you want to get some bonus content, then please head over to our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. I promote what well, I use because I actually use it. And this sounds like so staged. <laughs> Here we go. Here's the advert. But like, Give I actually thought money. it was, a you know, this is like value aligned uh, advertising in the sense that I really believe in his app. Like, why shouldn't a whistleblower app sponsor a uh, independent, um, you know, journalistic operation? It's a perfect alignment, isn't it? It is better than being sponsored by, I don't know, Facebook or whoever. (laughs) Um, So it it seemed really a no-brainer. So, you know, we have a bar to deal. If it's a whistleblowing app, how do you know what is genuine and what is? Well, this is his genius thing. So one of the problems journalists have is that you you often get, you know, reached out to by, look, I don't want to, I'm very keen to not like, upset anybody but sometimes people get a little bit overzealous in terms of like what they're seeing and then you know people have personal vendettas or uh, access to grind so not all whistleblowers are good whistleblowers and people you know you have to filter it out so journalists get a lot of you know people who time wasters basically is the quick way of saying it and um reaching out to them and we need a way to easily like protect the the identity of the person who's speaking to you but without having to go and have a coffee with them meet face to face and what frank was pointing out was that you know when 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 snowden tried to reach out to journalists it took him a year to make the first reach because um because nobody would take him seriously and 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 that that first point of contact is always really difficult. But also, you need a to and fro to to be able to determine if there is any validity to what people are saying. And with his app, it's an instant messenger chat, which means that any institution can basically have his system. And so one way, so it creates kind of burner code. It's very easy. It's not for you Bitcoin people because you know how to use PGP signatures. But the average sort no, of... No, I don't. <laughs> 
Have you ever tried to use PGP signatures? No, because it's like beyond my capacity. Everyone listening will be like, oh gosh, she's an idiot. But um, it's just, it is really hard. And I think the average person who works in like a bank or an institution, it is a point of friction, right? So um, if you can just like take a QR code, take a photo of it, go to an app which allows you to um, dispatch an anonymous message to the journalist or the institution, and they've got it kind of, Dropbox where it comes in, but rather than read it and then like do a uh, email or like how do you con- connect, you have an instant little ma- message chat. So you can like to and fro, send images, you know, figure it out wh- whether there's any substance to the claims. And then only afterwards go and have the first sort of meeting. So it just helps you determine the validity of your source. It would, it's also potentially very good for the Catholic Church if you want to do confessions. <laughs> In an anonymous setting, but online in, say, a lockdown. <laughs> but there are all sorts of use cases. But um, How do people find it? It definitely sounds like a shill now, but I love Frank, so I don't care. <laughs> it's higher, H-A-Y-A, um, org, O-R-G, dot com. So that's the institutional one. That's the one where if you want it for your institution, but there's also higher chat. So if you look at those two, or go on my website, the-blindspot.com, um, it's all over there. But um, And it's on my Twitter page. But now we've definitely gone into the ranks of um, total uh, product placement. So well, sorry. I don't mind. Firstly, I love Frank. I've known Frank for 20 years. Um, and also, I love what you're doing with the Blind Spot. I am a subscriber, as you know. That's very kind. And I like what you do. Um, and it is, journalism is one of the things I want to talk to you about today, even though this is a Bitcoin show. Because... Uh, over the, I would say, okay, I started this podcast like six years ago as somebody who, who maybe naively was uh, a massive uh, defender of de- both democracy and mainstream media. I thought it's v- very easy to ex- attack the mainstream media um, and journalists when I thought they did a, a t- difficult and tough job. Now, not all journalists are the same. I understand that. But over the five, six years I've been doing this, I've regularly regularly come up against journalists who do a very poor job of reporting on what I do, like very poor job. And I'm not asking them to be pro-Bitcoin, I'm asking them to be fair Bitcoin. And too often getting just very basic facts wrong. And I've even attempted to reach out to them and say, hey, listen, I can help you with this, let's correct this. The only one who was any good was uh, The Spectator. Mm. They actually replied and said, okay. Okay, fair enough. You can even write a reply, which I did, and they published it. But often they're almost arrogantly dismissing <laughs> us. And then also I found democracy a very hard thing to defend, over, especially over, since COVID and over the last couple of years, especially what's happened with Matt Hancock. So I'm like in this position now where I, I, I don't... I'm, <laughs> you I'm don't not, know who you are. <laughs> well, I don't. Cause I don't I, I, look, I don't know where I stand because the other side is I'm not an anarchist. And also I've seen some of these successful independent journalists suffer from the same problems as mainstream media that where they have the same audience capture so i'm like Isabel, yes. what, what, what the exactly heck? what the hell what do i do and you know i wanted to talk to you actually danny most of all uh was the one he's really disappointed he's not here Aww. he was really looking forward to this one because uh he's such a fan of yours and he said he said isabella is the person we should talk to about this one she's british so her uh, accent is more credible <laughs> secondly she has a credible background <laughs> thirdly i know you so i you know i get on with you but he said uh you're the one i should talk to about this so so people who don't know you some people might not have been Amsterdam. just give your career background let's talk about the blind spot and then let's dig into all this bollocks so i am a journalist um i i mean how back far back do you want to go i i i did um you know i did ancient history at college 
just to really make it historical. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do in life. And I thought, you know what, um, I've always been fascinated with, you know, what, you know, geopolitics, what, what, what are the factors that influence society? And I thought, well, as a historian, I should be in the, in, you know, in a, in a role that catalogues tomorrow's history. So I ended up doing a journalism course and throughout my career, I've been, I've been at CNBC, I've been at Reuters, I've been at a funny English language newspaper in Warsaw, Poland. I've worked in Azerbaijan. I've been on freelancing ops to Kabul. And then around actually 2008, <laughs> I went from CNBC uh, to the FT, where I stayed for 13 years on Alphaville. And I was the editor of Alphaville by the time I left. And um, and I never really wanted to do anything else. I did do columns there as well, but it was one of my favorite jobs because um, I, I considered it the best job at the FT because it was, it was so like anarchic in a w- really weird way because we were like an internal like I don't want to say fifth column, but we were like a um, like You're a like subcell. The, uh, the FT's wild little brother. Yeah, like a hedge. Like an, like if everyone was, we were the internal contrarians, always trying to figure out where the groupthink was and pushing back against it. And in a crisis, we we went full wonk. Like we could get really into the weeds because I think when you work in journalism, you are always conscious of um, the broader audience, which makes you you know editors walk. And it's it's a good policy. I'm not dismissing the policy because I think it is important to you don't really understand your topic if you can't explain it very simply um but it does tend towards sort of dumbing things down and getting things wrong and with Alphaville because we were like in the heyday of blogging and you could write these insanely long pieces and go really wonk on like you know contango trades and whatever and no one was doing that at the time and there was a very niche but um important and very um influential audience and so so we were we we had this amazing opportunity to to do things differently and it was a, it was such a collegiate environment back in 2008 because the blogosphere was like challenging normal mainstream media. And when we started, like no one in core media really even knew what Twitter was. They didn't understand blogging. And the blogosphere was always ahead of the curve versus everything else. And and by the and there was this like weird loop where you, you'd written something and then a month later, like a reporter would come down to you from, from the main news desk and say, oh, there's this really interesting thing happening. And I've, like, I've read it in... In uh, in a bank analyst now, and you'd be like, yeah, yeah. Well, we did that like a month ago. <laughs> I think they probably read it on our thing. Uh, and so it was really cool. And um, and so I loved it. I really loved that time. And and like you say, I think there are very there are many virtues to the to the mainstream media. And what was really um, important, which I miss, is the sense of of working in a group where do people think in different ways. Because I think it's for a contrarian mindset, if everyone thinks the same way, you end up having your own blind spots. So it's important to, uh, I've always been a contrarian and I always second guess myself um, and I try to not get too married to my positions. So I will defend something to to the, if I somebody comes along says X is X, I will try to critically analyze why it isn't, like a scientist. And if, if however, it withstands my scrutiny, I will have to change my mind. Because if you don't, you're an idiot. Then you become so ideological. And I think in 2020, it's interesting you referenced that, everyone went a bit mad. And and no one was using that basic sort of line of logic. And that really frustrated me. And I found it very hard to operate in an environment where you couldn't question. And my my overarching um, point on 
what happened 2020. It's not that I necessarily was right that lockdown was a bad idea. I just wanted there to be a debate without like resorting to people who are saying maybe this is the wrong policy, without resorting to saying you're a granny killer or you are (laughs) some sort of immoral agent. Like why shouldn't you in a democracy question whether the government policy is the correct one? That to me was, I couldn't handle it because as a journalist, I'd always questioned everything. So to demonize questioning was for me very hard. Well, I've noticed that recently also with Russell Brand, he's been... They're starting to demonise him now just for asking questions. Yeah. Someone who was a darling of the left who now is no longer a darling of the left because some of his thoughts appear to be contrary to what the left believe on certain issues, not everything. And I was trying to figure this out with Danny. I was trying to explain it in certain ways because COVID for me was a whole experience of realising I just trusted people too much. I just believed what I was told. Me too. Uh, I believed, okay, yeah, there's a virus coming in and lots of people are dying. Yes, a lockdown's great. And then you had to realize, oh, shit, that was wrong. Oh, there's a vaccine here. Yeah, I should take that. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have taken that. And I think they were they were almost like the final stories. You know, do you remember that game? Um, oh, what was that game with the donkey where you put the bits of plastic on it? And the bucking bronco thing, a buckaroo. You never played Buckaroo. You never played Buckaroo. (laughs) No. So it was was like a donkey and you had to put like different bits of like Mm. satchels and things on it. And when the weight got too much, you didn't know, and it would buck. I think, because we're the same year, aren't we? 78? Yes, the best year. What what month? July. You're a bit older than me. I'm October. (sighs) Just a little bit. Older school year. I'm sorry, that is the best generation. Like we, we basically were brainwashed in the 80s, which was the best time to be brainwashed by TV. Well, we, we were brainwashed when you had no outlet to find out you were being brainwashed. So we just accepted it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, kids now, they find out they're being brainwashed and they challenge it and they become TikTok journalists <laughs> at 15. We also had spoky dokies, no mobile phones, yeah. cassettes. I was explaining cassettes to my daughter the other day. <laughs> I was like, so, yeah. So Back we, in the 80s. Yeah, we used to have the music. We used to have to put it in this machine. And if we wanted to get to a song, we had to press forward. And then sometimes it would unwind. You had to wind it with a pencil. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> anyway, where was I going with this? Where was We're I? We're becoming old timers. We're becoming very old. Um, what the hell was I saying before then? I, now I've forgotten as well. That's how old we are. <laughs> we, we forget the things we're talking about because we're so old. Oh, oh my God, that is so funny. We can't look to him. Oh. What were we talking about? He and, wasn't oh, listening. Anyway, no, he I remember what we were talking about. No, I was too trusting. I grew I up trusted, trusting yes. things and... and and I've had to, it like, like buckaroo, yes, too much weight. Buckaroo, and, I, that was it. and I've, I, it's all belted off me now. I'm like, screw this shit. And I, I now longer, one, embarrassingly having to walk back some opinions I've held, but also not knowing what to trust anymore. And, and actually, I'm not ideologically driven. I just want to find the truth. Yeah. But I was trying to explain it to Danny, and I was trying to say, I wonder if we're, if we're all falling into a trap here because there is a, say, a left and a right. And there's like a Venn diagram of things, mm-hmm. of topics. And some they overlap and they may agree on. And some they disagree on a fight over. But they can, you can hold, if you're a conservative, you can hold a contrarian opinion to the Labour Party as long as it's within the field of things you're allowed to argue about and, and vice versa. But if you want to ask or question things that sit outside both parties, you're suddenly a conspiracy theorist. There's almost like this group of questions you can't ask. And I fear it with my job. I even say it to my friends. I say, look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but these CBDCs are a bad thing because they, they will come from either party. These are a bad thing or the banking system's corrupting. It's actually very worrying 
when both parties agree on something. Yes. Because then there's no opposition. And in in the UK, and I'm sure lots of your listeners are from America, but in the UK, the whole point of a shadow government is that it's like devil's advocate. You're supposed to stress test and keep the, you know, hold the government to account. And so when there's like total unanim- unanimity on anything, it's 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 actually either... 100% correct <laughs> or it's 100% wrong. I mean it's it's very it's 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 you know our system depends on that dialogue. Well this is where it gets me to my challenges now. Democracy. Uh, well two things democracy and truth. It's like I'm struggling on both. You know, the BBC is a great example. And we'll talk, we should talk about Gary Lineker and explain that to people, which, by the way, <laughs> I think was a great win for democracy, even if it isn't a great win for the BBC. Um, but I'm struggling with uh, democracy because I'm not an anarchist. The, the alternative to democracy to me is tyranny or it's uh, anarchy, which has never existed and will never work. Or communism. Or communism. Like, it's all these other <laughs> shit things. Yeah. So democracy to me is like the best shit version, the, the, to paraphrase with um, curse language, uh, Churchill, it's the best shit version that we have. But it's so broken. <laughs> I'm not voting. Well, I think, you know, as an ancient historian, I, and this is another thing, I, another collaborator on the blind spot is Tim Ferguson, who runs the Anasoclosis Institute. So I'm going to shout out to him. Um, and Anasoclosis is like, currently, so I try to be quite neutral in my politics, really. And even though, like, lots of people on the left think I agree with them on lots of other things and people on the right think I agree, but actually I'm, I'm fairly distributed. Um, but that's because my m- mindset about politics is from the anisoclosis perspective. And the anisoclosis perspective is a Polybian theory about cyclical political systems. And that, you know, actually it's very rare what we've had the last hundred years or more. Democracy is is actually, um, you know, well, in the specifically in the last hundred years, the kind of like wealth effect that we've had as a result of of democracy in the post-war environment. But the um, democracy itself, institutionally over thousands of years that we've had it, um, is is frankly, um, well, actually, Poland was one of the first democracies in Europe to just bring out all my all my biases. Um, we had a noble democracy, so it's slightly different, but that's why I say thousands of years. But the... Um, the problem with it is that it 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 is a solution based on cyclical principles, right? And if it can't swing because one of those, so essentially, um, anisoclosis is the theory that everything gets corrupted eventually. Okay. So you start off with like, let's say the proto original uh, model is the benign monarch or the benign, you know, the philosopher king, right? So that's great until there's a succession. Because you don't know who the child's going to be, right? So in that case, um, what happens if it's a tyrant? And even if you have a good, like, you know, run of like 13 generations of a nice king, at some point you're going to get a tyrant. So it's not, so monarchy is not brilliant. It's definitely not, not protected from corruption and having a tyrant. But once a tyrant emerges, usually it swings to the next phase, which is a benign oligarchy. So like there's a coup against the mad king, 
a la Game of Thrones. (laughs) And then they kind of secretly kind of manage things. But they too get corrupted, at which point there's a revolution. So so the example of that is sort of France and the kind of aristocratic system and the concord between the head of state and and the aristocracy. We we also had that in the UK. And then, um, then there's a revolution and you have mass democracy, and that's great as well, or, you know, a good form of mass rule. But then that gets corrupted and you end up in mob rule or you end up with a situation can swing the other way where there's a coup and there's a return to uh, autocracy. But sometimes a benign autocrat emerges as well, in which case, you know, this is where we are. And this is, I think it, it speaks to your dilemma. Is a bad democracy better or worse than a benign and good dictator, at least on a temporary basis? And I think in the and so I had a massive argument with David Gerard, who I'm sure you know who he is. Mm-hmm. Attack of the 50-foot. Blockchain. Blockchain. And I'm a big fan of David's. And I I, 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 re- I think he's exceptionally well researched and, and he is generally a good egg, um, even if I disagreed on this on, with him on this one issue. But we were discussing El Salvador. And I'm not an expert in El Salvador. And I will definitely put my hands up and say I'm not an expert. But... Um, but I've read a little bit about it, and I know there's like history there. They've they've had a very tumultuous recent <laughs> recent past. Everything you know, I, I, the, the way I know went into El Salvador's um, history, or the way I was exposed to it, was through a book by a, a Polish author called Ryszard Kapuściński, who wrote about the soccer war, which was you would love. I know that I've got that book. That's between Honduras and El Salvador. Isn't yes, it? yes, and it was the civil war. Like there wasn't a civil war. It was a, a, a like a very brief, maybe two week war hmm. that emerged because of some penalty no like they didn't get into the finals i don't think but there was a they were playing the each other yeah. off and um what happened is that th- there was a lot of like politics before that i think there was land migration and like el salvadorians had moved to honduras it was all very complicated but they were playing each other and honduras team came to play or vice versa anyway they came to play in el salvador and they got um, now the El Salvadorians went to play in Honduras and the Hondurans were very loud outside their window so the team couldn't sleep. And as a footballer, I'm sure you'd appreciate that. It's a great tactic. <laughs> they, they they used to do... Who did they do that to? I, I'm, was it like Man City or somebody? They did it to a hotel. They set the alarms off for a cup final. Like it's an old tactic. It's an, Well, it goes back to the 60s, 60, the, the soccer war. And, um, and of course, El Salvador lost... And there was a massive outcry because they thought it was unfair and some girl committed suicide and it became very, very emotional. And then Honduras had to play their match and the Salvadorans did exactly the same thing to them and then the Honduras um, team lost. And on their way back to Honduras, they were like, something's going to go down, it's just going to go down. And then like within days or even a night, I'm sorry if I'm getting my history wrong as a historian, um, there was an attack and the El Salvadorians attacked Honduras and it was like a seven-day or ten-week, ten-day war. It was really awful and very bloody and lots of people died and it was, you know, a precedent to the madness that has ensued in in, in, um, in El, El Salvador ever since, which has always been like in the grips of some sort of tyra- tyrannical coup or, or like a, a, a military junta or whatever being bankrolled by one western state or the other right and there was like a proxy war between the ussr i think and the um and the americans kind of basically trying to get edge 
power into 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 the politics there. And I am, and then finally, you know, the final it was not good. There was a horrible kind of dictatorship, and there were um, deaf gangs. You know, not what they call deaf um, deaf squads. Deaf squads going around hor- horrific stuff. From that emerged the gangland of, of MS-13. So all I said <laughs> to David Gerard, who was very quick to, you know, criticise Bukele, um, is that I appreciate that he might be going a bit dictatorial, but we don't know the sensibilities of the El Salvadorans. And frankly, in some cases, if you're surrounded by a chaos, I can see a situation where... A little bit of certainty under a benign leader that you you think is on your side makes a hell of a lot more sense than like standing up for democracy, which is never going to get rid of the MS-13 problem or whatever, right? And, and I just think we need to be a bit more open-minded. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way for you to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time for you to take your security a bit more seriously because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger customer since early 2017. I'm still using the same Nano S I bought then and I've got a few more of their products. I absolutely love everything they do. Ledger also have a very new product coming. It's called Stacks. It's going to be dropping in the summer. I've already pre-ordered mine. Now, the pre-order is sold out, but there is a wait list, so go and get on that while you can. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. That is shop.ledger.com. Next up, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners, and with 24-7 live chat support, you can get all the help you require. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-M-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Iris Energy. Now, as you've probably noticed, we have been increasingly covering Bitcoin mining on the show. And as the team at Iris Energy share mine and Danny's values, they're such a great fit for what Bitcoin did and for you, our listeners. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner who has used 100% renewable energies since inception. Iris Energy targets markets with low-cost excess renewable energy, and they build and operate their own proprietary data centers. And the team is led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across infrastructure, renewables, and digital assets. In fact, Iris Energy's NASDAQ IPO was the only Bitcoin mining IPO to be led by top-tier investment banks, including JP Morgan and Citi. Now, Iris Energy know that Bitcoin mining can be done sustainably, supporting the Bitcoin ecosystem as well as the energy transition. Iris Energy is the leading 100% renewable energy miner. And if you want to find out more about them, then please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co, or look up their ticker, I-R-E-N, on NASDAQ. 
Also today we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. With everything that happened last year in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach, as they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Has David been to El Salvador? I don't know. Okay. Have you? Yes. Ah, well, you can tell me Five more. times. I've interviewed the president twice. Oh, yes. Uh, well, I, you did. <laughs> yeah. So you can tell me more well, than anybody. So it reminds, you know, it's a funny coincidence. It reminds me, like, last night I ended up watching, have you seen the film Gone Baby Gone? No. Gone Baby Gone. To explain this, it's, I'm going to have to be. A, it's a. I'm going to have to give you a uh, ruin the plot for you. But essentially, a young girl gets kidnapped and goes missing. She's about four or five years old. The film was meant to be released about the time um, Madeline McCann went missing, so it got delayed for a while actually. Oh, but right. eventually, got released, and <clears throat> it was a huge conspiracy. And she ended up being kidnapped by a policeman, Morgan Freeman who I think his own daughter had died. Mm-hmm. And they were really well-to-do, raised her well. The mum, who she was kidnapped from, was uh, uh, it was the, her brother who knew her, the mum was a crack addict and a, just a piece of shit mum. And he helped her get kidnapped by the police because he knew this girl would get a proper upbringing. Mm-hmm. They end up finding her and like, cracking it and realising it was the policeman mm-hmm. um, who uh, kidnapped her. And so then the policeman who'd figured it all out went with his wife to visit Morgan Freeman. They see the little girl there and they're like, ah. Oh. And his wife says, leave her here. Do not return her to her mother. She's going to have a good upbringing. She's going to have a good life. Yeah. And he's like, but I have to because it wasn't his right to steal her. And so it was this real kind of moral dilemma of the rules say that she should be with her mother because it's kidnapped. But... Morally, people are questioning, like, but yeah, but her mum's a crackhead, doesn't care about her, she's a drug dealer, she's just a piece of shit. She's little girl's gonna have an amazing life. And so they go through that moral dilemma. And like it makes me think a little bit about the moral dilemma of El Salvador, which I've seen debated because Alex Gladstein, a very good advocate of human rights, works for Human mm-hmm. Rights Foundation, has been very critical of President Bukele and you know, the human rights situation with the mass arrest of people who've basically got tattoos. And I totally see his point. But I also see that the murder rate has dropped from what's something like 110 per 100,000 to 7.8, which is a huge drop. I've been there myself. I've been to a red zone. I've got a tattoo here. I got there. And I met somebody there and they, and they said, this was pre all these mass arrests. They said, the difference under Bikali is, is I can use my phone on the street. Previously, I couldn't because it would be snatched from me. The country has undoubtedly got safer, undoubtedly uh, become more of a tourist hotspot. Uh, undoubtedly, there's an increase in the GDP. The, the country is improving, but it's taken someone who's got kind of dictator tendencies to do this. Now, do I think he's? Do I think of him like a, a Putin or a uh, you know like a more kind of like an evil dictator? No, I, do I think of him more of a benevolent dictator? Perhaps, but the population behind him at the moment 
he's going to be voted, he's going to win a second election, which is against the constitution. What happens after that? Does he do a third, a fourth? What happens when turn? And I don't know. And I question all these things. Well, you know, this is the thing. This is um, this is why I love, in some ways, you know, this is a very long-standing argument in ancient history and philosophical cir- circles. Like, what is the best form of government? And I don't, you know, we've just assumed democracy is the right answer, <clears throat> and I think, by and large, democracy is the right answer. But democracy, the reason democracy works is because it synthesizes all three of those um, government um, models. There is a bit of monarchy because we have a prime minister or a president or a head of state. We have a parliament, which is the oligarchy. And then we have the um, the voting part of it, which is, which is the democracy, right? So in a ideal system you those three complement each other and it's all like checks checks and balances on on power and it rotates and and actually what we've done is we've simulated that the usual process is that this according to polybius this cycle continuously evolves and that when it when it goes from one point from a from the from the kind of monarchy to the oligarchy to the democracy stroke mob rule it's always very destabilizing for economies or for, for civilizations. But in democracy, we essentially synthesize that transition because we do controlled, tran, you know, controlled um, rotation of that system. And because it's controlled, you get, you should allow for the bad stuff to get sort of shaken out, but without the destabilizing effects. That's why when, when it becomes very, um, when you can't have transition of power very smoothly. And it's interesting that we're, we are talking on the day that Trump is about to be arrested, allegedly. Yes. I'm sorry if, I've, uh, if it makes it date, if it dates the program. But um, if you can't have that transfer of power in a smooth way, then you end up with a destabilization. And democracy itself is probably beyond, like, saving. And I think we've what I've noticed these days is that... <sighs> In, de- in our democratic systems, you're either in power or you're in prison. Hmm. And that is usually a, a, the sort of characteristic of, say, the developing world or, you know, Latin America. You know, the idea is, like, you're in power or, and you then put your or enemy, you know, the former president then goes to prison because you, you're so polarized, you hate each other so much, you can't, like, there is no peaceful transition. Um, but to, re- to to the qu- real question is how do we get back to a system which allows for that peaceful resolution and for democracy to 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 flow again? And I think the reason, and this is my last point because I'm talking a lot. No, you um, meant to talk a lot. This is a this is how it, it's not. A dis- people prefer interviews than discussions because they don't want me to talk as much. No, no, no. Um, I I want to know more about your Bukele experiences. It sounds fascinating. Um, the um, but the point is when when. When you when you can't transfer power easily, you end up with. Now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's the transfer of power. Um, I was going to make a really impressive point, and I've forgotten. Um, I hate it when that happens. Something probably to do with anisocleosis. Yeah, you were saying if, if there isn't a smooth transfer of power. Um, yes. So. If, if, if that's it. So why is there no longer a smooth transfer of power? Because the process has, in my opinion, been corrupted because we don't have a fair, I don't mean this in the Trump sense, but I mean it in the sense of lobby groups in terms of like who really has influence over the politicians, like who really has influence. Like 
the one thing about Trump that I had to agree with is when he stood up there and said, well, you know, I know they're corrupt. They're corrupt because I paid them. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's, I can't argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> that's a point that is um, essential. And I think this is, uh, is very true. And I think that is fundamentally the issue is that when politicians come in to office just so that they can later make their money out of what they've done in office, that is not a good model. Well, that's the entire US model, exactly. which the UK model feels like it's slipping into. I think Matt Hancock really exposed that by saying, I'm going to go and I'm a celebrity, and then I'm going to release a book, which which by how naive was he to have, yeah. I can't remember, you all know her, her name is a ghostwriter. Isabel yeah, Oakshot. That's it. Have I'm, I'm not a huge fan of hers, but to have her as a ghostwriter and give her all your text messages was yeah, the, unbelievably the, 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 naive. The madness of that is, what was he thinking? Well, I have no idea. But I mean, the key point is he went to monetize his his position as a... Yeah, but he could have got any ghostwriter. Why do you... Like, she was a known lockdown critic yeah. who is married to Richard Tice, the head of the Reform Party, his, like, competition. <laughs> like, what was he thinking? I know. She must have said, I've got all his fucking text messages. <laughs> well, either that or he was doing a Columbo. I don't know. I, do, I think I I don't think he's particularly intelligent, Matt Hancock. Personally, I've never been. He went to Oxford, didn't he? Yeah, but there's there's like there's university intelligence. There's graded. I don't have grade intelligence, but there is also common sense intelligence. I just don't think he particularly is. I think during the whole COVID. I mean, do you remember that video of him stood next to that lady looking all weird from the hospital? But like he try he you know he's you would you I would think you would argue he would he was halfway through his political tenure and decided to monetize it. The incentives yeah. were so strong for him to make money, he went to did it. After a very unsuccessful tenure during lockdown where he was highly criticized, and that's the point, is that it's too easy to monetize it. Oh, by the way, which I think there's a solution for, I think we should pay politicians much more money. Yep. I think they're vastly underpaid for the role they do. People complain about politicians. I think we should pay them a fortune so they don't go and monetize it elsewhere. No, and I so agree. people want to do the job. And also, who wants to even be a politician these days? I mean, like, you, you're, like there is no upside to being a politician. And I, I mean, I just, your personal life is on, you know, full, you know, display to everybody. You can't, I mean, the idea of it is just appalling to me. Like, I really don't know why you'd want to do it. it it's actually a sacrifice nowadays to be a politician. And therefore, um, the, it, the, so there's an adverse selection because the wrong people come, become politicians. And well, it's narcissists. It's a breeding ground for narcissism. Yeah. And psychos. Yeah, because like, there, is, there are, and to be fair, there are a few good politicians who I think do do it for the right reasons, but they're very rare. Hmm. <laughs> so how does this so where are we within this cycle then I mean do you want the pessimistic view or the optimistic view uh, I'd like both actually so I think you can definitely read it as collapse of democracy because of corruption, in my opinion, yeah. and that democracy needs to be rescued. And I am very pro-democracy in the right format, and I want to rescue democracy. And that's why we've come up with this idea of what I call Vitruvian capitalism. And, and the idea really is that you can't have a healthy democracy unless you have a thriving middle class because middle the middle class determines um, when the middle class is doing well, they get on with like 
adding value to society and being non-disruptive and and generally towing the line and everyone's happy and the you know income is distributed in a, a really because like this idea of communism where everyone is like equal that's just that's just not ever going to work and as a poll I am very much against communism so the nearest thing you can get to sort of egalitarian society is a society that does have a small but um you know dynamic and meritocratic um billionaire class as small as possible an underclass obviously but with a lot of mobility between you know so that there's at least opportunity to go up and down but the middle class is like the bulk of you know the the, the whole system and unfortunately, at the moment, we're hollowing out the middle class. So every mm. single thing that's happening in terms of economic policy, politics, whatever, it's always the middle classes that are suffering. Um, and that is what instability is made of. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is the tax system doesn't incentivize productive investment. And um, there's a bit more than that. It's not just the tax system; <laughs> it's it's the red tape as well. As well a, oh yes, one hundred percent. As a business owner, yeah. uh, you know, I own multiple businesses now. I mean, I'm just buying a bar at the moment, which I'll own in ten days. The amount of oh, things. Oh, cool! You what? would say so, but oh, completely agree. But like all the different licenses and things I have to do to run this bar, I was like, Jesus, this is a bar that has like two hundred people go to it. Well, this is what happened in like communism like everything was a bureaucracy because every layer of bureaucracy is an opportunity for for Rent a take seeking. for a take yeah and so we've just like you know I've, sorry sorry to interrupt i no, think no, no, it was um so i made a film on inflation and i think it was dominic frisbee said to me that to destroy a society i think it was, he said he said that lenin said to destroy a society you have to hollow out the middle class that sounds plausible yeah i think it was that it was either lenin or stalin i can't remember but it sounds like the sort of thing yeah. they'd say. <laughs> but 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 I'm with you. It's, you are seeing this. But it is it, the tax system is awful. But it is the red tape. But but we have gone to that point now where I know plenty of families. It's both both uh, both parents are working. Both have you know, what you would consider good jobs, and both are finding it quite hard or seeing seeing them pushed to the limits and. You know, I used to grow up thinking when they, uh, they talked about the middle class, I said, why, did, why is everyone focused on the middle class? Shouldn't we be focused on the working class? I didn't realise the importance of a middle class to a well-functioning society. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And um, we, I mean, we've forgotten about the working classes entirely, in my opinion, as well. So it's, it's there's collateral damage across the spectrum. <laughs> and so we've got this sort of like Versailles situation where there's a small global elite who are um, imposing all sorts of, you know, the system, it's, it, for me, it's USSR 2.0. So that's my worst case scenario, is that we're on the verge of USSR 2.0, which stems from the same problems in the sense there's too much centralization, there's too much bureaucracy, there's too many people on the take, everything's a bezel, everyone is working in a, in a, a de facto nationalized company because half of the, like, your, a lot of your uh, uh, listeners are not going to like this, but I think there's a hell of a lot of tech startups that are just bullshit um, who, who if they are successful and get loans from Silicon Valley Bank or whatever, is, you know, how many of them, especially in the UK, are doing it because they get government contracts? I mean, the PPE scandal is a great example of this, you know, the, the government isn't really nationalizing stuff or owning things, but they give out these contracts, which basically can make or break little companies. So if you get a government contract, you're quids in. But if you don't get a government contract, you, you'll never, you can't compete with those people who have, right? Mm -hmm. 
so and then you've got this, the 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 bank obviously gives the money to the to the to the startup with the government contract but how do you get that contract through your connection so it's all it's all kind of like nefarious and how does the banks now get their money <laughs> well exactly and by the way who's the bank owned by now like oh yeah. hsbc and where does that where you know ultimately that's now a, a chinese bank and if they backstop all Bank money, banks can take as much risk as they like, lending as much out as they want. It which, doesn't. None of it makes any. Fucking which is sense. exactly and, and essentially. So this is the column I'm actually writing this minute. Is is you know this has just made something that is implicit, explicit, which is that the banking system has been nationalised, and and since two since two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. and we've just been pretending it isn't. And because it's nationalised, like like with any socialist system, um, like in USSR, the state is not capable of making productive investments because it it always ends up like profiteering on it you know allocating wealth to people who are in the in in the little you know ruling uh, elite and so that ends up misallocating capital and taking it away from productive investments that can actually make a difference to this world and things that everyday middle class people really want mm-hmm. and allocating them to whatever the elites want in this case it's all ESG stuff right <laughs> which ultimately are value destructive for everybody because they're a mechanism by which you know okay it's for the sake of the planet but some of these things are completely ridiculous and have nothing to do with the planet so well look i completely agree um in the latest budget there was nothing in there for me at all and that's not me as a selfish person saying what's in it for me there was just nothing in there for me as a business owner corporation tax is going up soon so that means i'm going to have less money to invest i've got increasing red tape increasing licenses my ability to do business is getting harder the minimum wage is going up which by the way uh, um it's not that i oppose to paying higher wages it's another cost yeah, in buying this bar, I've got. Uh, I know there's a big increase in the heating, the uh, uh, electric that's coming to this business because it's previously on a fixed price deal. It's getting harder and harder to do business, but nothing in the budget was. Yeah, you know, I am. Um, I did interview this guy called Dan Tubb, and he told me about how the government's going 100 billion over budget every year. There was nothing in this budget that said, "Well, we're going to cut back as government here." Government continues to grow. It continues to grow, and we're continually pouring money into every Under different. Under conservative pro- government, on top of that. Yes, interesting enough, but they're not a conservative government. No, they're I a agree. they're a blue they're a blue Blair <laughs> Labour basically, and it's like that Bill Hicks sketch, you know. Do you prefer the you know the psycho on the left or the psycho on the right? They're, they're both like they're the same thing. But it, you know, Dan, Dan Tubb referred to it as we. Uh, the governments are now insurance brokers. They basically provide insurance for any mistake that anyone can make in society, yeah, whether it's health insurance or it's all, uh, pension insurance or it's welfare insurance. And we cannot afford to do this. And the point being is that, look, I think I'm a good allocator of capital. I've created multiple businesses. Take, take the handcuffs off and let me do it. Exactly. If you had a government contract, you'd also have to pass an EQI score. Do you know about this? No. Equality? It, yeah, so th- there's now this push for like any government contracts, you know, have to be given to companies that meet a certain score on EQI, and I don't know exactly the the the, the criteria, but um, it's it, it is it's like a diversity and whatever green, I don't know whatever policies the the um, government wants to pursue, and uh, that's very progressive but, for conservative government, except. The funny thing is, the only people who can score you are like a handful of little agencies 
that exist, like, there are only, like, a handful of them and they all have to be, like, with the people. You know, like, when we all had to get our vaccine um, tests and there was, like, a list of approved suppliers. <laughs> yeah. So the same thing. It's, like, approved, like, people who do the score and um, and there's not enough of them. There's, like, councils everywhere who need these scores and because there aren't enough of these approved suppliers, like, to get a score, if you're a little startup, it's, like, £100,000 for a score, which is an insane amount of money to waste on a score to evaluate how, you know, it's something that can be, like, common sense can evaluate. And then the... Um, and there's no logic to the like, as far as I understand there's no logic to how they do these assessments um and the and and the reason so I know a startup who was trying to, to they did get a government c- contract and um and they were try- <laughs> they had to do this score to get the, the actual money and um and what ended up happening is they um they couldn't believe they'd been co- quoted a hundred thousand they're just a little startup they're like oh, we can't we can't afford this and the government department was like, well, it's okay, we'll pay it for you then, don't worry. And and they were like, no, I, no one should be paying it. It's ridiculous. Mm. He's like, how come it's this much anyway? He goes, oh, because all these councils have to do it and they've just driven the price up because there's not enough suppliers. And this, this to me is just like rampant, obvious, like, bezel by the, like, it's the same thing as in communism. You have these, like, corrupt, um, you know, apparatchiks who are sitting in the system and just... Uh, taking money for creating stupid like positions that don't do anything just this is the pessimistic view right this is not the optimistic <laughs> no, this view. is the pessimistic view <laughs> so what's the optimistic view oh, the optimistic view i hope yes is that we recognize these problems and frankly and this is where i got a lot of heat on on twitter like this is gonna sound mad but i liz trust i was not a fan of liz trust really not a fan mm. I had no, to be honest, I didn't know that much about her. I'd not read her book. But if anyone, you know, we have to do something. And that was a better option than, you know, we have to try and do something to revive our productivity. And at this moment, it's like, I don't know, it's like in some sort of sci-fi drama where you're being pulled into a black hole. And you can either stay on that course or you can do something like then suddenly Tom Cruise comes in and it's like, yeah, no, but I have this like crazy plan and it involves actually leaning into the black hole, but to use the, the energy to propel ourselves outwards, you know? And yes, we could die, but at least we've got a 1% chance of like surviving, <laughs> right? Oh. And um, that's what I think. And I think Liz Truss was that kind of slingshot maneuver mm-hmm. and we just killed it. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep all my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi 2.0 makes Bitcoin privacy effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join like in Wasabi 1, this is all done automatically. So all you need to do is receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can send privately. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, something, you know, I'm always moaning on about. Now, you also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't need to leak your IP address, and there is no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I'm taking a lot more seriously, and Wasabi 2 makes this so much easier. If you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, we have Fortress. Now, 4% of all Bitcoin transactions on an MOM basis go through Fortress, which equates to $7.7 billion since their inception in 2017. 
of which 3.6 billion happened last year, 2022, last year alone. Now, Bitcoin is more than just a holding asset. We see large organizations already using it in their day-to-day operations. And if you want to do this, you do not need to overhaul your system. You simply need to integrate Fortress to handle all your Bitcoin treasury operations. If you want to find out more about this, please head over to fortress.com, which is F-O-R-T-R-I-S.com. Also today we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling you Bitcoin right now, are you? I hope you're not. Now, I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I've also set up a DCA with twice monthly Bitcoin buys, and I've been stacking sats all through this bear market. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did, All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. I don't know enough about why, you know, why the policy failed, why the bond market crashed afterwards. I've heard rumours that that was... A By the way, the pound is one of the strongest performing currencies in the last quarter. In the last quarter, yes. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it hasn't been in the last year and a half. Uh, compared to the dollar. So I am always aware compared to the dollar because all my sponsors pay in dollars. So, you know, when the pound crashed, it, you know, I essentially made more money and as it rises, I, I make less. And But... There were suspicions that there was a coordinated crashing of the gilt market because people didn't like her policies. But when they were announced, they were very traditional conservative policies. Lower tax, stimulate growth. I think I think it was a media... This is going back to media. One of the problems is media people, <laughs> and this is where I you know, criticise myself, I do it, I'm guilty because we're all guilty of it. And I, I think you have to acknowledge your own role in it to be able to fix the problem. And it's a psychological problem, which means that we all want to be first to a big take. And um, it's like any mind hack. Like you, you you see something and you're like, yeah, 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 the headline proves my point. Therefore, and then you don't reach the bottom and you share it and you you haven't actually done the research, but it's confirmation bias like on steroids, right? And so that's, I don't think it's like, I don't think people do it on purpose. I just think it's a psychological um, disposition of of everyone, and in the trust situation, um, everyone was like immediately, oh well, OBR says it's bad, therefore it must be bad. But actually, if you read Tr- Trust's interview post post that uh, event, nobody told her about the LDIs. Okay, fine, maybe that was a problem, and sh- there should be better communication. But um, but fundamentally, was 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 that really that big a sin? Like under COVID, we passed unfunded budgets, and it's quite clear we're going to monetize the debt at this point. So all this was about monetizing of the debt. This is going to happen. Anyone who can read the markets can see we are going to monetize the debt. In fact, Silicon Valley Bank, the whole debacle this week and last week shows you we are going to monetize the debt. Like it's just just the the the, the Fed is taking loans at par which means they're trying to pretend that they haven't, you know, that, I mean, it's, it's an impossible situation just by raising rates. They are killing the value of their own bonds and then pretending they're not. <laughs> um, don't, don't you sometimes think perhaps having this centralised interference is the problem? I think in this case, 
Demonstrably, yes. And so what happened with trust is that she just made something implicit, potentially explicit, which is that we we're going to monetize the debt. But if you monetize the debt, it's like during a war, like in emergency scenarios, it's okay, providing you invest it properly and actually get your productivity up. And if you can create growth, it's that slingshot maneuver. Um, and but the, the kind of usual voices on on Twitter were like, oh no, because like how dare she like tax cuts, blah 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 for the rich and not yeah. for. The... But when you actually deconstruct what she was doing, the tax cuts were for pay AYE. How many rich people do you know pay themselves through pay AYE? Like the billionaires, do you think they paid through no. like PAYE? But they will pay themselves a pound usually. Exactly. Yeah. So it wasn't deemed... for the billionaires. The PAYE tax PAYE tax cut uh, t- tax cut was actually for the very people who took themselves into the idea that she was doing them a bad um, service because it was the lawyers, the the kind of self like, not the self employed, the, the the professional classes that take a salary, the people who work at Deloitte, at McKinsey. You know, people who draw salaries, who live in the commuter belt of London, are the people who would have benefited from that tax cut. And they're the ones with the biggest mortgages, which would have hurt them, like interest rates will hurt them the most. And so this was basically throwing them a bone, which they then threw back at her. And so I feel very, I think that was a really big blunder for us in the UK. And now we have, you know, you know, I don't know. I suspect, um, I suspect in the long run, we will realise that everyone's going to do what trusted and it was proposing anyway. Well, somehow we have to stop spending more than we earn as a country, um, which is, I mean, the, 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 def- the growing deficit, I think, is a concern. But one of my bigger concerns, Isabella, is trying to commute i like i see all of this right mm-hmm. i just do this day to day the the people i talk to on my podcast or the people i talk to on twitter are all talking about this i try and reach out to the circles of friends and explain to them i put out the i don't know if you saw the letter about the coordination between the ecb um the fed uh the, the bank of england the uh, boj like how they were all coordinating with these swap lines, which I'm not going to pretend I understand what the hell they are, but they're all coordinating. This letter itself, you could read it, and you could, like, even an idiot like me could read that. Mm, this doesn't sound good. So I was like, right, I'm going to put this up on Facebook and say, look, just read this. It'll take you about two minutes. Just read this. This will give you an understanding that something crazy is going on. Nobody read it. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. And so, really? well, well, your reach, your viewers, readers would care about that. My friends on Twitter, so Twitter and yeah. Facebook are different people. Twi- oh, Twitter so you is like work. Me have two lives yes i have my twitter world yeah. which is my professional world and my facebook which is baby friends pictures and, and dogs and football updates and, yeah and most of your friends and family just probably roll their eyes when you say stuff is that because that's like for me so <laughs> so my 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 twitter people roll their eyes and think i'm some crazy woke liberal my facebook fr- friends think i'm alex jones <laughs> It's my tweet. It's my pinned tweet. I've like this is how, like I've got two rah, like angry faces, and I try <laughs> and tread that path really carefully to say, listen, I'm, I'm seeing this all here. You should know about this. You know those high interest rates. Well, this is why it happened. You know that high inflation. This is why it happens. But they see it and they complain about it, but they don't want to go to the point of understanding why it's happening. I can't get them to yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I have the same. I, I, I. I... I mean, most people have busy lives. They have their day jobs and they just don't have the capacity and bandwidth to pay attention to this stuff. Well, we can go back to journalism, though, because I watch the news. 
and then and interest rates are reported on. I watch uh, Silicon Valley Bank and the banking crisis being reported on the news, but nobody on in on the mainstream media is talking about the reason Silicon Valley Bank or these banks you know have got themselves into difficulty is that they were buying. Uh, 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 yields and the massive rise in interest rates put those yields on what nobody's talking about the detail of the, and the stupidity that's happening like I heard it on the radio yesterday some lady explaining about the liquidity crisis she didn't explain why there was so it's almost like we're holding back from giving people the truth of what's happening in these situations and it get, takes us back to like I don't know I mean you, you've you've worked in these journalistic circles it, what, why? Why don't we get this from a reporter? But mainly, okay, so if you if you are a reporter and you get asked to go on the BBC mm-hmm. and you to talk about finance <laughs> and you use any technical term, they will never write you back because that you have to like reduce everything to the like, the the most you know simple explanation you can think of. Like you can't you know you can't say the word mark to market. It's too complex, and and there is a general perception in editorial newsrooms that the vast majority of your readers are not going to get X and Y. You have to put it in very simple terms. And this encourages people to... And and, and usually that would be okay because actually simple, like George Orwell said, simple writing, keep, keep, it, keep it simple, stupid, actually is really important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the problem is that... Well, let, let me go back a little bit. If you really understand your topic, really understand it, you can explain it simply. Mm-hmm. People who don't understand it can't explain it simply and they can't explain it technically like in a in a in a non-simple way either because they just don't understand it however the simplicity allows them to just not bother learning any of it right and so you end up just fudging things because there's never a need to delve to the next layer because nobody ever does complex stuff on tv or in in print um, so everyone's bluffing is what I'm, I'm basically getting to because they've never read, like, it, a real analyst is going to take two or three days for them to understand what really went wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, I just find it surprising. Like, this was obvious since 2008, 2009, actually 2009, 2010. Like, there were, when, as soon as they did QE, there were, there were hundreds of papers written about how the exit's going to complicate things and how are we going to manage the exit because really once you expand the balance sheet to go back is really difficult um, and and you have this problem. And that's it's, it makes sense. Think about it. Usually you raise interest rates mm-hmm. and they, they, they are a, um, a, a lever that can regulate credit supply in the system. But if you have this huge bond portfolio that's out there because you've expanded the balance sheet, if you raise interest rates, you're also like debasing your bonds, right? Mm -hmm. That's why you don't go QE (laughs) because the problem with the monetization isn't on the way when on like whilst interest rates are down, it's when you have to like contract, you know, your um, your liquidity. And frankly, if you didn't have a QE like expanded balance sheet, then you could raise rates whilst inflation is going. And it'd be all right because there wouldn't be thousands of underwater bonds. Yeah, but this is, this goes back to the problem of the political cycle in that the decisions they make have a lag. So you can make a decision in two thousand and eight under God, who it was it was the Gordon Brown. No, no, I'm thinking in oh. the US it was across it was essentially a crossover from Bush to Obama, wasn't yes. it? it? Tim think, Geithner. Yeah. So 
essentially the decisions that made then rescued the economy for for those people. It's not there, and not the problem. It wasn't their problem. Like what happened next? No, and it pushed the problem onto Trump and now Biden. And now every, you know, people will want to attack Biden and you know, blame Biden or even blame Trump. But these are successive governments that have made critical errors across the entire spectrum of mm-hmm. politics. And so these are institutional issues, not uh, policy issues that you can tie to one specific uh, political ideology. Yeah, exactly. And I think you make a good point about long-termism because... <laughs> You can't, like, if you're not accountable for your decisions in 10, 15 years' time and they've ruined the economy, like, what's that about? Like, oh, it wasn't me. You know, it's, it, it is it is, it is a funny situation if if people can, you know, that's the downside of democracy and continuous sort of um, rotation of your leaders. So there is a, you know, if it was a lifelong, you know, like the queen. The queen, like, you know, God bless her soul, um, was a real rock of stability for the UK. And mm-hmm. I do think people underappreciate the role she played in global stability. And I do wonder if people have overlooked how destabilizing her death will be because she was the ultimate neutrality uh, like political force in the world. Uh, and an almost, what, unimpeachable... What, how long was she head of state? Eight, Eight years? years? Yeah, Un- almost unimpeachable. Yes. I say almost because I think she should have thrown her son under the bus. <laughs> you know. Chat for another day. But but like, all, you know, who has, who who else could have 80 years without real scandal? Yeah. Um, but in my circles, it's not going to be very popular to... Uh, to defend the queen. To, to defend uh, a monarchy of any kind, an elitist monarchy. And I, I, look, I don't, look, I think the queen w- was a fantastic monarch, but I'm not a fan of the monarchy. <laughs> I think in the UK system, the fact that she, you know, the UK obviously has a very underpowered monarch because yeah. ultimately parliament passes all the laws, but she has that capacity to... Um, influence soft soft power is what they Mm -hmm. call it right and you know the uk soft power had some you know we rolled out we roll out the red carpet when we want to like attract foreign investment or whatever and then it it does play a part um and if charles isn't as neutral as the queen that's a problem because my general thesis just to bring it back to money is that the problem we we've created as a result of not just Ukraine, like the the the, the denutralization of money started a long time ago, but it's become more acute now because of Ukraine. So there is no neutral asset to price the market. And so we are living increasingly in our own bubble valuations, pretending like and that's fine for as long as you, you don't depend on external, like you don't need commodities or, or anything from outside of your little, you know, zone and you can pay for things with your own currency. But in a multipolar order, which might be the next phase, that means a massive sort of depreciation of our overall wealth as a Western system. And because, you know, it will it will be kind of USSR 2.0-y. And if that's the case... The only optimistic pathway out is through innovation and productivity. And that means entrepreneurs have to really rally together, forge networks, distributed, and I agree with you on that, um, and find resilience in, in 
in in network-based productive ventures? Well, look, this show is promotes a neutral asset, an uncorruptible asset mm-hmm. that hopefully at some point, maybe a decade, decades down the line, could be that measuring stick, that could be that neutral measuring stick, like I hope for. Um, I'm not going to spend any time when we've got seven minutes to go getting into <laughs> to the... Well, where, do you, where, where are you with Bitcoin? I, I, I am in a situation where I think Bitcoin plays a role in the new multipolar order. I think most of crypto is crap, <laughs> but the... Um, I mean, it's all you crap. can't you can't really replace Bitcoin because it was the first one, and so just from a pure like energy endowment perspective, it is the first one. Nothing can replace it, and therefore it will always have the most. Um, it's got the biggest blockchain, <laughs> and um, and I think for I don't see it as a settlement for retail payments necessarily in the future. I think it can coexist in a in a competing in a landscape of competing national currencies, but be the ultimate settlement um, token between those different zones. I think you've just put it better than I ever would. Why Why do you think the FT still don't take it seriously? And I know you might have to be careful with your words, or not even want to answer, but... Well, I think to some degree, the FT speaks for the establishment. Okay. And I think... Whether wittingly or unwittingly, I, I would say that there are people who are pro Bitcoin and crypto in the FT and who are open minded to it. Um, and I think the whole collapse of like FTX and stuff, you know, they've been all over that. And and um, f- funnily enough, like it's become a huge story for them, even though like for years people were rolling their eyes about me and Jemima being really obsessed with crypto. They're like, oh, God, it's just not a story. It's not as important as, as traditional finance. Um, but you know, I always approached it from the point of like view of you have to scrutinize this stuff. Like it claims, it's making very bold claims. I have to, you know, criticize. And I think, you know, most of, a lot of my criticisms have been, um, have been, you know, were fair and, and, and hopefully led to corrective action. And so, um, but that was my perspective. But I do think, you know, the lockdown changed my view on everything, as you know. And that's when I realized that it makes sense. You can't, the system is better off with a neutral asset that can price everything because without a neutral asset, you have no pricing of anything. Mm. Everything is just, you know, there is no money must be neutral and and there is no neutral money outside of Bitcoin at the moment. Yeah, not even gold these days. Gold reaching a new high as we speak, I think. Is it? But <laughs> Peter Schiff will be happy? I think so, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think gold is fine, whatever, but if in a digital age, you need a digital gold because um, you can't compete. Like you, you wouldn't be able to compete with anyone Like if you have to settle in gold. Like it's just, you can't, right? Yeah. Um, my friend John Pfeffer said to me a long time ago, he said, when we're all, when we're all flying around in our millennium falcons, we're not going to be settling in yellow rocks. We're going to need a digital gold and Bitcoin is the one. And it, that always stuck with me. And so, like, uh, I'm 100% agreeing with him. I'm conscious we're coming to an end. Uh, God, there was so much more I want to talk to you about. But that means we can at least save it. I mean, we haven't even talked about Gary Lineker. I wanted to oh, talk man. about that. Can we very quickly talk about that? I saw it as a win for uh, democracy. 
to be honest, what is the latest with Gary? Did he get his job back? He did. Okay. Yeah, well, I he think... Also, he also uh, completely destroyed Petty Mordant on Twitter. Oh, I, you see, I'm not informed enough about this, um, but I just think, you know, I don't necessarily... First of all, I don't really care. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Peter. I'm not really into football either. It's, it's not about and, football. Um, I I think he should be allowed to say what he wants to say. But um, with, you know, does he get overpaid? Probably. I I I don't really understand what the controversy was about. Well, he spoke against the uh, about the government policy on migrants. Oh, he called them Nazis. No, he didn't call them Nazis. So, so that 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 was how it was uh, misrepresented. Mm. He said the language they're using is familiar to 1930s Germany. Uh huh. Which it kind of was, you know. So, and it's the, the argument is: sh- should he be able to be? Should he be able to express a non-neutral opinion, non-neutral political opinion, as someone paid by the BBC? Well, he doesn't work in current. Like, I think news. It's more difficult for news reporters. Mm. I think news reporters. But he works in, in sport, right? Does yeah. it like matter? He's. I think he's. Uh, my own point is that. Um, the difference is, is that Hitler was like being oppressive to his own citizens, right? So mm. that was the difference. Whereas, like, like the Tories are having policies for non-citizens, right? So that's the difference. Like throwing people out of your own country, and do you, you know, it's very different. I mean, it's not nice either way, but yeah, it's but just... it, yeah, but you know, we've moved to a point where that. Yeah, but he's it, got a right to say it. Is oh my yeah, point. yeah, an absolute right to say it. And the fact that the the BBC tried to shut him down and tried to cancel him, and then everybody refused to work or match of the day, everyone from commentators to his co pundits to, I, I think even some of the camera, I can't, maybe it's the camera operators, it, 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 it poisoned the, the the show that nobody could now work on it because nobody wanted to step across the Gary Lineker picket line as such. And so I just thought it was a, I thought it was a win for uh, for free speech. Yeah, I which mean, we don't have enough of in this country. I think free speech. Yeah, but then you know I was just thinking today, like, would I draw the line on free speech if it's like um, going to cause a banking panic or something like that? I don't know. I tend to agree with you. I, I'm a ma- I'm a free speech maximizer, which means. I want to push free speech as much as it goes, but I do think there are small, there are a few limitations that are there. I'm not like American free speech. Um, but there's limitations in the US, incitement to yeah. violence and yeah, yeah. yeah so that's where I so, you know, you can't shout fire in a yeah, exactly. A so I'm, I'm, I and and with Gary Luca, we're out of we're out of time. Oh my god, that went yeah. so quick. I knew this would. Okay. Right, listen, you should finish by shilling. The blind spot because I think it's wonderful. <laughs> Tell everyone about the blind spot and how they sign up and where they should send their money. The dash blindspot.com. Annoying dash because the, the actual blind spot is owned by a company that makes blinds. <laughs> 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 Which one day maybe I will own, but not yet. Maybe I can be able to make them an offer they can't refuse. Um, yeah, so yeah, check me out if you like my stuff. Um, I've got, you know, I'm, yeah, I mean, what else can I say? I write about finance, but I also write about media because I think you can't get finance right if you aren't, like, if you don't approach things from two perspectives and at least try to push back against some of the propaganda. doesn't necessarily mean I agree, like, with certain ideological positions when I'm uh, trying to explain what's going on with the propaganda um but i just think if you're going to try to make money in the current environment you can't afford to be swept up in the propaganda well listen i love it i love your work and 
I wish Danny had booked us three hours, not an hour and a half. And we were both a few minutes late as well. Uh, but we'll just have to do this again with Danny. Um, well, sounds great. Um, he's over soon. We'll, we'll come back and, um, and hopefully, you know, figure out what's going on with the world of banks. But maybe by, well, maybe by the time we come back, we will, we will be living in a, a new paradigm yeah, of we, financial we, we might multipolarity. We have to show our IDs to get anywhere. And, are you coming to the conference in Miami? In when May, is it? May. Uh, not at the moment, but maybe. I, I don't know. I don't, I probably, I, I, I no, not at the moment. We need to another conference because that was good. Anyway, listen, thank I'll come you. To <laughs> come to a conference. Come to a conference. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Isabella, I will talk to you again soon. Thank you, Peter. All righty. What do you think of that? Did you enjoy that? Now, I loved talking to Isabella and I've been talking to her offline a little bit as well. I'm also a subscriber to our website, The Blind Spot. Definitely go and check that out. Um, Isabella is incredibly smart and thinks she approaches these topics with total intellectual honesty, which I really appreciate, and I will definitely have her back on the show again soon. Now, if you've got any feedback about this or anything else, you can hit me up at hello at whatbitcoindid.com, or better yet, jump into our Discord server. You can find an invite to that in the show release page on the website. Also, please do come and check out our live event. It's going to be an absolute banger. It's going to be tying in with the end of the Real Bev season and it looks like we've got a good chance of winning the league. So a live event on the Friday, football on the Saturday. What more can you ask for? If you want to find out more, head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on a WBD Live. Okay, enjoy the rest of your week and I will see you all on Friday.